Well, we are in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to go verses 9 through 11 this morning. And just so you guys remember, um, I know some of you guys have been here for a bit, and some of you guys are here maybe just for a first or a second time. Uh, we do have a new members class coming up, and this is a great opportunity if you aren't uh, part of our church officially to get to know more about what the church is. And uh, you don't have to become a member at the end of that membership class, but it is very helpful. And it doesn't happen every single uh, month, and so it's a four-week class. It will start on Wednesday, uh, February 21st, and so uh, the next one will probably be late spring. And so if you want to take it now, uh, do let me know uh, in the next uh, week and a half. I look forward to teaching that class. It's always one of my highlights. Romans 12, 9 through 11. Let's read these verses together. Romans 12, 9 through 11. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And this ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, part of what I loved about math class was the simple, straightforward grading. You either got the problem right or you didn't. That just was not the case in my English classes, especially something like creative writing class, or, or perhaps worse yet, in the arts. And, and I was an art major in my undergraduate, I was a music major, so I can speak from this, okay? I'm not just throwing stones. I'm throwing stones at my own major. A lot of times, grading English papers was so subjective. I remember getting papers back and it would say B, and on it would say, it just didn't flow. What does that even mean? Another one, get back and says, see, it didn't grip me. I think maybe you were grading it while you're watching television because this is a gripping story, right? Another time I get an A and on the top would be interesting, but your grammar needs more attention. Why did you get an A then? See, the standards in creative writing are often unclear. And when I look at Picasso or hear a atonal Schoenberg composition, I think, how is this a masterpiece? I've looked at some modern art and thought, pretty sure my five-year-old has drawn more pleasant things to look at than that. And that's because standards are frankly subjective. Just think a bit about how terrifying that would be if your life was an English paper and God's standards were like your creative writing professor. That's a snapshot into a Muslim view of God, Allah. His ways are said to be so far beyond us that you can't be sure if you've ever done enough to please him and get to heaven when you die. But the God of the Bible is categorically different. God's standards are sure and unchanging. I mean, first, his standard for salvation, for justification, for being declared right before him is obvious. I mean, we're going to look back. Go ahead and go back to Romans 3, verse 20. I want to show you this because in the first couple of chapters of Romans, Paul builds up this argument for how we can be reconciled or made right with God. And after recognizing God for who he is and seeing the sinfulness of our own sin, Paul writes this in Romans 3 verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared right in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or, or been revealed apart from the law, the good things that we do, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ comes through all who believe. The point is, we are declared to be right before God. We have confidence to enter heaven, not because we've done enough to please God, but because we have trusted in Jesus alone for our salvation. Paul, Paul circles back around to clarify as he continues, verse 22, he says, for there is no distinction, everyone, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
Yet we are justified by God's grace as a gift, a free gift, a, a grace gift, through the redemption or through the purchasing that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That means a payment for our sins. And by his blood, we are re- which is received by faith. See, salvation only comes when we trust in the finished work of Christ in that propitiation, that payment that Christ made while he died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. You see, God poured out his wrath that should be on us on his son in our place. That's the payment language. That's the substitute language. And so God punished Jesus propitiated Jesus in our place so that we can be reconciled, made right with him, so that we can be declared righteous and so that we can have certainty when it comes to knowing God. He continues, the end of verse 26, so that God might be just and the justifier, he might be fair and the one who declares us righteous of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By by a law of works? By the things that you do? No. But by the law of faith. See, salvation is based on trusting in the finished work of Christ. And so we can be declared righteous before the one and holy God. We can have confidence that when we die, we will be with our Lord forever. But what does it look like to live a life of faith? Does it simply not matter how we live as as long as we at one point believe in Jesus? Look at Romans 6, verse 1. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that God's grace may abound? Are we to just kind of keep on sinning because you know what? God's grace is so lavish, so abundant. Might as well just cover it, and then God's grace would get a lot more credit, wouldn't it, if I sin some more? So let's sin. Is that what we should do? He asked the question. By no means, verse 2. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're united with Christ in his death, meaning that we have died just as Christ died. We were buried, therefore, with him, verse 4, by baptism into death. That's what baptism symbolizes, a death to self and a rising up to newness of life. He says, we were buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might what? Walk in newness of life. God created us and God redeems us. God saves us so that we would be different, so that we would begin to live differently. We should not be content with continued sin in our lives if we have trusted in Christ. And yet even with that clear statement, it isn't until we get to Romans chapter 12 that we start to get a picture of what day in and day out normal Christianity is supposed to look like. What God expects from those who've truly died to self and trusted in Christ. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And I love verse one and two. Because really, Paul's getting at here, this is to be normal Christianity, and yet you read it and sound, man, that sounds pretty severe. Listen to Romans 12, 1 and 2, normal Christianity. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by all the ways that God has not punished you the way he ought to have, that you should present your bodies as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual or rational or reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing or your trials, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, there's this constant theme in Christianity that our lives are not our own, that every breath we have is a gift from God and thus should be lived for him 
always, above all. And so we get these ideas in these verses that, that we're supposed to be a sacrifice. We're supposed to die to self. And every time we take a breath, every time we live our lives, we are doing so completely under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the type of life that two times in, this, in these verses, God says is acceptable. You see that? This living sacrifice life is acceptable to God. And then when we renew our minds and aren't transformed to the world, we then are able to live a life and discern what God's will is, what is acceptable to God. See, normal Christianity is to live as an acceptable sacrifice. And yet the question remains, what exactly is acceptable to God? What types of things are marks of all genuine Christians? There's turning and trusting in Christ as a lifelong habit. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. But what does it look like day in and day out to turn from sin and trust in Christ? Here's where Romans 12, 9, and really the rest of this chapter, starts to flesh out our question. Starting in Romans 12, 9, Paul helps us understand how to live an acceptable sacrifice to God. That's why we titled this sermon, How to Live as an Acceptable Sacrifice. Spell this out for us. We've got between 25 and 28 fairly short and simple commands. It depends on how you count them. 25 to 28 commands that, that mark the Christian life from Romans 12, 9 to the end of the chapter. And it's why many in our Bibles, we have a, a common heading at, the, at verse 9. Maybe yours says, if you have the ESV, marks of the true Christian. It might say Christian's love and action. It might say Christian ethics. Look, this is the grading rubric for the Christian life. These are the ways that we can live that God finds acceptable. And so although we certainly will not perfectly hit each of these, our regenerated or renewed hearts, our Christian hearts, should want to live this way. We should aim for these things because we are actually most satisfied when God is most glorified. But I think the way we need to look at each command is to consider each one carefully. I mean, how many of you have as a regular habit in your life to read a chapter or two or three every day as a part of your daily devotions? I hope a lot of you do. And if by providence you were to read Romans 12 sometime this week, if you simply read through this chapter, how many of these 25 to 28 commands do you think you remember? One? Two, maybe. If you go to the next day, it's half of one, right? See, sometimes we, we don't need to view the orchard from 30,000 feet. Sometimes we need to walk in and amongst the fruit trees and look a little more carefully, pick a few pieces of fruit and, and taste the goodness of the Lord. And so to change the metaphor a bit, I could preach verses 9 through 21 in a sermon and give you 28 points and it would be a bit overwhelming and you'd be like, I don't remember any of these things. But what we're gonna do is we're going to kind of go through a couple of verses and hit, you know, I think it's like eight to 10 of these points or these commands so that we don't drink from a fire hose but drink from a drinking fountain. This morning, we're gonna get through three verses this morning and take the list in chunks. So today I want you to see five ways we live acceptable to God. Five ways that we live acceptable to God. Five ways that a Christian should live so we can be an acceptable sacrifice to God. Well, after talking about the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells the Corinthians that even if you are incredibly gifted, even if you are incredibly talented and have all these natural abilities, but you don't have love, you know what he calls you? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. No offense to percussionists, but a misplaced symbol is one of the least welcome sounds to the human ear, right? Played skillfully, though, at the right time, a symbol is a perfect flourish to accentuate a crescendo. But if not, it's loud, it's obnoxious, it's grating. So God's point for us is simple. Even if you're the most gifted individual, if you don't selflessly love, you're worse than an obnoxious symbol. 
So our first way to live, avoid hypocritical self-love. Avoid hypocritical self-love. Here, right away at the beginning of verse nine, we have a summary statement of how we're to live. This is kind of maybe the, the guiding statement or the guiding command for the rest of the section. How we're to use the gifts and abilities that God has given us, we're to use it with selfless, unhypocritical love. So let's just read the simple command. Let love be genuine. Now, now the Greek here isn't just a positive call for genuine, selfless, agape love. It's specifically a warning, and it's a negative statement, actually. The, the Legacy Standard Bible says, let love be without hypocrisy. The CSB and the NENT say, love must be without hypocrisy. So, so the type of love that marks the Christian life is a selfless, specifically an unhypocritical love. So we need to think a little bit more about what this means to be unhypocritical and what it means to love in this way. Turn to Ephesians 5 with me. Turn to Ephesians 5. Throughout the Bible, we, we learn that our standard for godly living is frankly God himself. We're supposed to be holy as God is holy, 1 Peter 1. We're supposed to love because God first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. And by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. We are to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Well, Ephesians 5 is very similar. Read Ephesians 5, verse 1 with me. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Here we find a very important principle. If we belong to God, then we are children of God. We've been adopted into his family. And just as our children resemble us, so should we then resemble God. So he continues, right? Therefore, be imitators of God because we're his beloved children or as beloved children. And, verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Remember what Jesus said shortly before he died, greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And as imitators of Christ, we too should die to self and live self-sacrificially. So he says, verse two, right? Walk in this selfless love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here we get that concept of sacrifice again, right? This idea that we are to live sacrificially, it comes really from Christ. Our model for unhypocritical, selfless, and sacrificial love is none other and always will be Jesus. To help you see this a little bit more, go, go to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Some of the most memorable stories are when Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. These guys were the religious leaders of the day. They were really considered to be the conservatives of the day, very concerned about preserving the traditions, and they hated Jesus, particularly when he pointed out their hypocrisy. In fact, so successful were Jesus' rebukes of the Pharisees that if you use the word Pharisee today, it essentially means what? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. Pharisee. They're synonyms today. And it's because of stories like these. Look at Luke 13, verse 10. Luke 13, verse 10. Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hand on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. That sounds crazy to us, right? I mean, 
this is amazing. Why didn't you just recognize this? Uh, all these things go through our heads. But, but imagine this guy is probably about 20 years older than Jesus. And Jesus' healing on the Sabbath literally went against everything this guy had taught and had been taught his whole life. That God wanted you and needed you to keep very, very strict Sabbath rules. But there's also more to what's going on in Jesus calling this man out. Look what he says. It's a little passive-aggressive to the crowd. Oh, you shouldn't do it. Don't come be healed on the Sabbath. Verse 15, Jesus says, Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? His religious zeal about the Sabbath being broken showed what this man was hiding. And you're like, what? Did he have animals? Yeah. He cared for his animals more than he did for this precious woman. And why was that significant? What were animals in those days? I mean, there certainly wasn't a lot of currency. We certainly didn't have significant bank accounts. And so animals was where a big chunk of your wealth was wrapped up. And if you wanted your wealth to continue, what did you do? Well, you took care of those animals. It didn't matter if it was a Sabbath or not. You took them to the watering hole. And if that watering hole was further than what the Sabbath regulations required of you, you did it anyways because you cared about your wealth being preserved. He cared more about his wealth on the Sabbath than a sick woman's well-being. And so this shows us something very important about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is how we cover sins that are operating in the background, just under the surface, that are hidden to most. We don't want to give up our love of money, so we'll talk big about giving, or give only when it's very obvious. We don't want to give up our anger, and so we complain about the flaws of everyone else all around us. We don't want to give up our porn habit or our leering, lustful gazes, so we scoff loudly about homosexuality and other sexual deviance. Hypocrisy happens when we try to cover sin that's just under the surface. It also happens when we want people to love us more than Jesus. John 12, 42 and 43 tells us that many Pharisees believed in Jesus but for fear of men, they didn't confess him. And I quote, for they love the praise that comes from men more than the praise that comes from God. This verse cut me deep as a high school student because that's where I was. I loved being loved by everyone around me, but I rarely thought about God's approval. So when we are hypocritical, we try really hard to make the outside look shiny because that's what everyone else sees. Remember what Jesus calls the Pharisees, right? White washed tombs. Or to perhaps give us a little modern twist, hypocrites are like a beautiful clean coffee mug with some cool vomit on the inside. It's pretty good, right? Hypocrisy loves to hide flaws out of sight and out of mind. Hypocrites don't mind lying, don't mind stealing, and they enjoy exposing the flaws of others because then theirs aren't exposed. I mean, how many of you enjoy those train wreck shows like, you know, Jerry Springer? That shows my age, but... You know, um, they, they have all sorts of these types of shows, the train wreck shows on YouTube. You can find them now. Uh, it's just people getting clips of people doing dumb things and saying, oh, look at this guy, how crazy is this? It's all over the internet. Why do we love shows like this? I mean, why do you watch the news talk about how bad society is or about how bad somebody is? Why do you do that? Because we have this twisted pleasure hearing all about the flaws of others because it distracts us from the rotten fruit that's within. We're drawn to all these things ultimately because we love ourselves more than we love others and more than we love God. Sometimes it's helpful just to think for a few minutes about what God said about hypocrites. Because on some level, we're all hypocrites. And we need to know about our hypocrisy. We need to see it in our own hearts 
so that we can turn from it, so we can avoid it. So first off, we avoid hypocritical self-love. Second, you flex your moral muscles. Second way we live, acceptable to God, we flex our moral muscles. We, as a culture, even as church, are morally wimpy people. I'm not talking about having political courage to lambast those you think are your political enemies. That's going to be really easy to do, and a bulk of what you're going to hear and the noise in our culture over the next nine months will be the courageous people who talk about how these evil people on the other side of the political aisle are just ruining everything. What I'm talking about is this. We are morally wimpy when it comes to everyday respectable sins. I was listening to some country songs by Toby Keith. You know he died this week. Who put on this good old Christian Southern boy persona, right? But his songs were full of sexual innuendos, drunkenness, crass language. I also listened to some R&B songs by Usher, who, you know, is performing at the Super Bowl today. And he grew up singing in the church and still claims to be a committed Christian. And his songs are filled with the same content or worse, celebrating fornication and a whole lot of language that I would never, ever, ever expect my child to say, let alone myself. And church-going Christians will love listening to both. See, our moral muscles grow weaker the more we are passive about what comes into our homes, the more we are passive about what comes into our ears, the more we're passive with what comes before our eyes. Especially if it's on our phone, right? We get interested in the perverse. You know, I wonder. And you look up things you should never be looking at. Because our moral muscles are weak. The next two commands will help us flex our moral muscles. Look at verse 9, right? What does it say? Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, and then abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And so first, we should be repulsed by evil. First way to flex your moral muscles, be repulsed by evil. That word abhor means to hate, to be repulsed by evil. It's almost a visceral action, to turn away in disgust, to get sick to your stomach. Does that describe how much you hate evil? And evil here is all kinds of evil. It's all kinds of things that go against what God desires. All kinds of things that God calls sin. We are to hate sin. You probably know that Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but did you know that Proverbs 8, 13 also tells us the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil? Evil is at odds with God. It's literally why there is pain and suffering in this sin-cursed world. It's the reason some of our loved ones are in hell. Because a holy God must justly deal with sin and evil. And so remind me again why we're just so permissive with evil. Why we don't care that much. Why do we not seem to care that evil comes into our home or that we listen to it or enjoy it or, or kind of are entertained by it why do we have and why are we okay with twisted curiosities perhaps it's because our moral muscles have atrophied i think one of the most damaging ways our moral muscles are weakened is by laughing norman lear the famous tv writer and producer of all in the family died last december at 101 years old and he was known for pressing the sexual revolution into the mainstream in the 1960s and 70s. And he did it primarily through comedy. Listen to what he said. Lear himself said, comedy with something serious on its mind works as a kind of intravenous into the mind and spirit. You see, when we laugh, we normalize, which makes laughter key to rewiring our moral system. What is funny 
is no longer taboo, but typical. And, and now some of what Norman Lear did was to put the normal on the screen. Like he was the first person to have a toilet flush on live television or on, on television show, right? That's fine, right? Everyone knows that the toilet's flush. But much of the 1960s and 70s television shows, Norman Lear's included, intentionally pushed moral boundaries to change the moral norm. So what are you laughing at? What's the punchline? What's the drama all about that you enjoy? Is it just celebrating sin? So don't just be passive with your entertainment. Keep your remote in your hand and be quick to change. Feel free to turn off the Super Bowl halftime show because you know that there's going to be inappropriate ladies dressed, dancing, and doing things that you don't want to see or shouldn't see. Flex your moral muscles a bit more and start getting repulsed by sin. Secondly, be drawn to good. Be drawn to good. Right? He says, abhor. That's just strong language. What is evil? Then hold fast to what is good. That word hold fast means to cling to or cleave. It's the same word used of marriage, right? A man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so then whatever is good should be so integrated into our life, it's essentially part of us. It's always on the mind. We're to cleave, cling to what is good. And what are these good things? Again, this is a very broad, general word for whatever's pleasing to God. It's broad enough to include things that we can rightly enjoy. Good music, creative art, a good story. Because all those things reflect the goodness of our creator. And that reminds me of Philippians uh, 4, verse 8, doesn't it? I mean, just, just listen as I read it. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Because what you think about is what you dwell on, is what you cleave to. So not only should we be repulsed by what is evil, let's be drawn to what is good. Let's build some of our moral muscles a bit. It means we have to exercise. So most immorality slowly seeps into our homes and our hearts and we just passively let it happen. So to build moral muscles, think a little bit more carefully about what you see, about what you watch, what you listen to, about what you show to your kids. And if you're drawn to the seedier side of entertainment, get blocking software. Do whatever you can to keep it out. Train hard to get repulsed by evil and be drawn to good. Look, this feels hard at first, perhaps unnecessary, unnecessarily puritanical, but let me encourage you. Our lives are easier our lives are genuinely more enjoyable when we live as God intends. And don't just be content loving evil. God intends for you to flex your moral muscles more. Third way to live acceptably to God. Number three, love your church like family. Love your church like family. One of the immense blessings of marriage is that you're stuck together. For better or for worse, till death do you part. When we're at our most vulnerable, sick with a stomach flu, our spouse is there with gloves in a bucket. Hopefully. In a good marriage, there's this bond of love and it should only grow as your family grows with kids. And so they say blood is thicker than water. Water evaporates, it goes, it flows away. Blood pools, it sticks, it's there. And so we recognize that in our own lives, our family, we're comfortable with each other, we see our weaknesses, we see our vulnerabilities, and we still love each other. So we see here that our church is also presented as family. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
This isn't the same word that was used earlier for selfless love, that agape word that you might have heard before. But here, brotherly love is used twice. It's the phylos word or the word where we get the term Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Philos is the Greek word for brotherly love or family love. And who are we specifically to have this brotherly affection for? It says, or at the beginning of verse 12, uh, 10, one another. One another is very significant here. This isn't our fellow man. It isn't our nation. The one another here must be determined by the recipients of this letter. And Paul is very clear. He's writing to a church in Rome. And each congregation was to read this letter and apply it to the one another's that they saw in their congregation as the letter was being read. Jesus understood the power of seeing strangers love each other like family, and so he says, John 13, 35, this is really important. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What do you think he says next? By your big evangelistic crusades and by the things that you do to get the word out there that Jesus is cool, by, by, by paying for millions and millions of dollars worth of ads on the Super Bowl that Jesus is different. Like, is this what gets the word out about Jesus? What does it say? By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's simple, unassuming, and powerful. This world will know Christ because we love one another. There's something imminently attractive about Christians loving other Christians as a family. This is God's design for the church. Brothers and sisters, this is essential, really, to our new nature as Christians. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And he assumes, like, this is what Christians do. God's taught you this. You're a Christian. You should brotherly love one another. It should be natural. It's part of what God awakens in us when we become Christians, to love our church family like we love our relatives. John takes this a step further and says, in fact, if you don't love your brother and sister in Christ, then there's room to doubt if you are a Christian at all. 1 John 2, 9 through 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides or resides or lives in the light that is with Christ. And in him there is no cause for stumbling, but... Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, lives in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's word, not mine. This is why it is deadly, a deadly serious thing to not belong to a church family. It is scary to not be integrated into a body where you can love and serve one another where you can follow what God expects. And it's deadly serious to hold on to hatred towards a part of your church family. Part of why we habitually gather on Sundays is to put brotherly love into practice. That's why most of us are in care groups where we can better love and better care for each other. That's so why so many of you get together all throughout the week and celebrate birthdays together and, and do so much more and live life together. It's because you love one another, and that's a good thing. And some of you, you know, think, I, I don't know that. I don't experience that. And you think, man, I just feel like an, barely an ancillary part of this church. Then make the first steps. Take some initiative. Invite others over. If you're not a part of the church family and you want to be a part of a church family, then join the church family. Integrate your family life into the church family's life. Because one of the normal goals for all Christians is to love your church like family. Well, the fourth normal part of the Christian life, number four, outdo honor for one another. Outdo honor for one another. This is very much related to the previous point. And I think it's helpful to look at showing honor in the context of your own family. I mean, most parents love to brag on their children. 
right? To, to show them honor for their achievements, no matter how little they are. I mean, new parents are especially um, eager to do this, right? Hashtag super sports star, and their six-month-old is, is rolling a few times. Yeah, way to go. Oh, my baby's got her alphabet down. Or Christian parents talking about verses they are memorizing or the sweet ways their children express love for Christ. Oh, you should have heard how he prayed. It was so adorable. And these are good things. They're all good things. But a lot of us have a harder time honoring each other in our church family. And yet, what do we read? Verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Be first to show honor to your fellow church member. Thank them for a job well done. Praise them for the ways you've seen God work in their lives. Aim to encourage them. It doesn't need to be weird to send a text message to someone in your care group and say, you know what, I'm thanking God for you today. And do say something specific. You know, it's been so great to see you grow and fight sin in your life. I'm so glad to be a part of this. And don't look for the credit in the jobs that you do. Look to share the credit. Give honor elsewhere. Look to give up preferences and honor others when the job is well done. Get practical. Start doing this in your marriage. Get some practice praising your wife, husbands, on a regular basis. Honor them. Talk about them. Tell them how glorious they are in front of their kids, in front of your kids. And if you don't have kids, no one's in the home, do it all the more. Wives, do the same for your husbands. And develop a habit of speech that honors one another. I mean, this is so countercultural because so much of the speech that we hear on a given day is simply complaining, grumbling speech, isn't it? So the more we love each other well, like family, the easier it will be to show this type of honor and edifying and encouraging speech for one another. Well, lastly, number five, energetically serve Christ. Energetically serve Christ. Now, they say kids are supposed to get at least an hour of unstructured physical play every single day. Adults are supposed to walk 10,000 steps a day. That's a little over four miles, just so you know. But we do not live in a walking culture, right? And we live in the motor city, literally. And so we probably, I'm guessing, just throwing it out there, you probably have a hard time reading, reaching those goals in your life. If we really want to change, we really want to get better, what do we have to do to start walking more? Start getting our kids out in unstructured play, you know, physical play. You have to be disciplined, don't you? You have to make a conscious effort. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make sure I do this every single day, or else it's not going to happen. You're going to get your, you know, 1,500 steps in going to the bathroom and back, right? So although I think it's wise to walk more, verse 11 addresses the discipline of serving in the Christian life and about how we need to be energetically self-disciplined. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful or lazy in zeal, Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. There's three simple commands again here. The the first being negative. And so we see really the threat of laziness. First we see the threat of laziness. He says basically don't get lazy. Don't be lazy, slothful in zeal. You could translate zeal as as diligence. The, The threat to be spiritually lazy is as easy as being slothful in your walking, frankly. It's real for basically all of us. And if we aren't careful, we'll start to get spiritually sluggish real quick. So keep up the disciplines of the Christian life. 
the regular devotions, the, the keeping yourself in the way of God's truth and being in a church, the, the faithful loving of your church family and, and texting people and calling people and praying with people, the using your spiritual gifts for the good of the body and having conversations that edify and encourage and honor. This doesn't happen on accident. It takes intentional energy. And so we see really the next simple command, verse 11, right? Verse 11 continues, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. So you could say energetically serve Christ with a burning spirit, with a burning spirit. Fervency literally means burning with the intensity and the intense energy of fire. If I say the phrase light of fire under them, you know what I mean, right? Get them going, get motivated, go, go, go. And so Christians should have their spirits burn with, with, with passion to serve in whatever way Christ would have us serve. If we're greeting, greet in another with God's kindness. If we're cooking for a new mom, do it with love and prayers. If we discover tragic news of a disease ravaging a loved one's family, encounter that news with sincere compassion. If we hear news of a new pregnancy, respond with unfettered joy. Listen, our spirits should burn with godly and appropriate emotions given whatever the situation. And ultimately, we work tirelessly. We work with God's energy that he gives us to work. Why? Because we work, last point here, as a slave to Christ. We work as a slave to Christ. Look again in the end of verse 11. It says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And that word isn't just to serve, but it's to serve specifically as a slave. It's the, the Greek word that has to do with slavery. And the Lord always is a reference to Jesus Christ. Really, this speaks of the lordship of Jesus in all things and in all areas. And in every way we serve him, he gets the glory. Remember, our lives are not our own. We're a living sacrifice. We've died to self so we can live for Christ, Galatians 2.20 says. Because it is an unmitigated blessing to be a slave for Christ. Now, that sounds odd to our freedom-loving ears. It, it does. But this language is pervasive in the New Testament. Even earlier in Romans, we aren't to be slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Everyone, we are told, is a slave to something. It's a matter of who we serve. You were designed to serve Christ. You were designed to put your energy into glorifying and enjoying him in everything you do. So with a burning spirit, as a slave to Christ, avoiding the threat of laziness, energetically serve Christ. Now, a few people have asked me over the years, how can you know if you are truly a Christian? It's probably one of the best questions to both ask and to be able to answer. And I often go to the book of 1 John to help answer that question. Because at the end of the book of 1 John, 1 John 5.13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, who, who say that you're a Christian, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so in the book of 1 John, John gives three proofs or evidences that our salvation is genuine that he repeats again and again and again. He, he repeats about how we all have to believe or have faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We all have to evidence then brotherly love. I mean, First Thessalonians says God puts that in our hearts. We then also are to be concerned with obeying God because that's part of what defines a Christian too. 
So we see, again, you must trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. You must love your brothers and sisters in Christ, staying integrated in and loving your church family, right? How else do you love other brothers and sisters in Christ? And you must have a heart that wants to obey God's commands. Commands like we saw today and like we're going to continue to look at in the coming weeks. So it's not that we become perfect or hit God's grading rubric at 100%, but I hope we've spent enough time looking at kind of each tree and each piece of fruit and tasted the goodness of a fruitful life to realize this is how I want to live. I want to live to obey God. I want to avoid hypocritical self-love. I want to start flexing my moral muscles a bit more. I want to love my church like family. I want to outdo honor, showing honor for one another. And I want to energetically serve Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to spend looking at this list of really what it looks like to live a faithful Christian life. Thank you that you have provided this for us so that we can not be ignorant or unaware of how we should live, what we should do as we are living, and help us, Lord, to really be faithful, to be faithful stewards of this privilege to walk closely with you. Lord, help us to be those who avoid the hypocrisy of self-love. It is so hard. So easy just to focus entirely on ourselves and to then slide into hypocritical ways. Lord, help us to identify the hypocrisy that remains and turn from it. Lord, help us to outdo showing honor in one another and love each other like family in this church that all men might be able to look in and see here is a church family that is a family of Christians and they might know Christ through our love. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to flex our moral muscles, to to start hating a little bit more what is evil and loving what is good. Lord, help us also to be fully engaged emotionally and in every way in the service and care that we are showing for one another. Help us to energetically serve you and your body. Thank you again for the ways that you continue to provide for us and give us everything that we need and more. We ask that you would give us strength to live this way this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.